Will you pray with me real quick, and then we'll jump into it. Father in heaven, we ask you for um, focused eyes, uh, the eyes of our heart, to see your word, but ultimately to see you, to see our frailty, to see our fragility, and to see your strength and your gentleness. Help us to leave changed and leave more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, wasn't 2020 really hard, but really great at the same time? Um, you know, in the midst of adversity, then you see just victories come. Uh, new lives began, so many babies. Um, new jobs began. Um, you've got unity that was maintained through national fractures, um, political fractures. Um, you've got community that prevailed through isolation. And what happens what, with the church, whatever, we're isolated. And we see community just go through that. And you see God provide. You see God provide. You see God provide. Um, sicknesses were healed. Some were not. Um, but God comforted if they weren't. And you saw God provide and provide and provide. So it was a hard but a great year. Um, but among so many provisions, among so many, when's God going to show up? How is going to God show up? It was also a tiring year, and a tiring even month and a half that we're, or a month and a week now into February. Of it's just the kind of the machine of life keeps going. The the victories of a new job, but I'm still working those 40, 50 hours. The victories of a new life, but I'm hearing a new voice cry in the middle of the night. And it's even though God is providing, it's tiring. Um, so the idea of tonight is the idea of discouragement despite God's current provision. And this is something we talked about in high school um, two weeks ago. And it was just it's something that's so near and dear to my heart, this passage. Um, we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 19, if you want to flip there. Um, it's just near and dear to my heart. One of my favorite passages um, in all of Scripture because of what it shows of God and what it shows of man. And not only from the year that it's been, but we also live in a tirelessly busy society. The U.S. among industrialized countries ranks among the lowest in paid um, holidays, vacations, uh, or parental leave time, uh, but among the highest on weekly worked hours. Um, the, New York City, kind of like, you know, the, the poster child of American cities is by definition the city that never sleeps. And America kind of ha does have a, an ability to produce people who just go and go and go and go. That after a while, you can pop some Red Bulls and some coffee but it does wear, and there's a lot of 4 a.m.'s waker-uppers in here in this room or watching, and that's tiring. Uh, so we live in a, in, a, in a busy culture. So what's my goal? My goal isn't to take a theme from culture and then try and find a text that fits it. My goal is to take a passage of Scripture and then deal with the themes of exhaustion and of God's responding counsel as the text deals with it. So it's not a, here are 10 clinical diagnosis of exhaustion, or here are how God responds every single time, but kind of a generalized view of, in this passage, how, what are some of the marks or characteristics of exhaustion, and how does God respond in counsel? So ultimately, in 1 Kings 19, through Elijah, we want to see five marks of existing in exhaustion and God's responding counsel. Now, before we jump into, just right into 19, we want to do a little bit of background. So who is Elijah? Really, in a, he's kind of an, uh, the epitome of a prophet. He, in the New Testament, almost embodies all the Old Testament prophets. He shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration um, in, in Matthew when Jesus transfigures. He's mentioned well over, mentioned a reference well over 20 times in the New Testament. So he's a major, major theme. And in fact, after him, and even John the Baptist, prophets will dress like him in camel's hair. They live in the wilderness, and they rely on God, and they're zealous for God. So he is this, I mean, kind of an epitome of a man in the hand of God, a man for God's using. That is Elijah. He is just a tool in the Redeemer's hand. But James talks about, and James talks about it in a positive light in James 5, he mentions this phrase, and he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And in the theme on, in that passage, he's talking about prayer, so we should pray too if Elijah was a man like us. But ultimately, from that phrase, we can deduce that Elijah was just a man. 
And the very best of men, like the saying goes, are men at best. And they have weaknesses and frailties. And we are going to see the near implosion of Elijah's life and ministry because of exhaustion. So 19 is, is that unfolding. In chapter 17, he just kind of appears on the scene and appears before a northern king of Israel named Ahab, who's not a good guy, who has a wife named Jezebel, who's not a good lady. And he says, behold, it will not rain in these lands, but by my word, for the next three and a half years, it's going to be a drought. And as soon as he makes that proclamation, God says, go, go to the desert. Go to the brook, Kareth. I've commanded the ravens there to feed you. And they bring him food, um, bread and meat, morning and evening. But the brook dries up because there's a drought. Then he says, arise, go to a widow. She has a son. And she has a jar of uh, flour and a jug of oil. And as long as he's with that widow, that jar of flour and that jug of oil that never go empty. And he sees God provide. And he sees God provide. When he's getting thirsty at the brook, when he's getting hungry with the widow, then the widow's son dies. And God, Elijah has to pray to God and say, put his life back into him again. And God, he listens to the prayer of Elijah and he resurrects his, a, a boy. And then in 18, you have kind of the Mount Everest of Elijah's ministry. You have the showdown of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. The nation of Israel had fallen into idolatry under Ahab, and they had started worshiping the Baals, and they set up new altars. And it's not that they solely got rid of God, but they worshiped Baal as well. And Elijah was just going to be like, this is not going to fly. So you set up an altar, prophets of Baal, 450 of you. I'll set up one. You go first. You ask your God to come down and consume this altar and this offering with fire. Then I'll go, and whoever, whoever's God shows up and burns it with fire, that is the Lord. And they say, it's a good saying. And you know how it goes. Uh, they, the prophets of Baal rant and cry and, and yell and cut themselves. And then Elijah even pokes at him. He says, maybe your God's asleep and he needs to be awakened. Maybe he's gone off on a journey. Maybe, you should, maybe he needs a messenger. And then he cuts up and he prays. And God comes down. And he consumes the... The offering and the fire from heaven licks up the water that, was, that the offering was doused in. And then we get to 19. So you see God's provision, 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 provision. This is three and a half years of hardcore ministry. Now, verse 1 and 2. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with a sword, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as a life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So Mount Carmel is right by the Mediterranean Sea, and the, in chapter 18, God comes down, consumes the, the, the offering, and then Ahab takes off back to Jezreel, which is about 15 to 20 miles away. So he's on a horseback or a chariot, some sort of animal. And it says that the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he pulled up his garments, and he beat him there on the foot. 15 to 20 miles. And so he's just like Usain Bolt cooking it there. And he beats him. So this is all the things that are leading up to it. But Ahab goes back to, to Jezebel and tells her what happened. They killed 450 prophets of Baal. And then the first mark of existing in exhaustion is this uncontemplated fear uncontemplated fear and i'll tell you what i mean so verse two here's the threat to elijah jezebel sent a messenger saying so may the gods do to me and more also if i did not make your life as like the the life of one of those prophets by this time tomorrow saying if the gods don't kill me like you killed the the prophets of baal then basically they're not real but basically i'm coming for you and i want to put your head on a stake now who won the matchup in the previous chapter? The prophets of Baal and Baal or Elijah and Yahweh? Yahweh. He showed up and he defeated his adversaries like he always does. What is the basis of Jezebel's threats? May the gods do to me. 
C.H. Persian says he flees from a defeated enemy. He retreats from a defeated enemy. She threatens him on the basis of gods who are just publicly humiliated. He's exhausted. He doesn't even contemplate the threat of where's the threat coming from? From gods who are just publicly humiliated. If he took a second and went, wait a second, what was I just threatened by? Then he would see there's no, there's no reason for us. Now, sometimes, I don't know if this is you of chores at home or a task or uh, a project at work the next day that just seems utterly daunting, like there's no way that I could do it at the end of a, a tiring day. And then you go to bed and you wake up and you're like, oh, like, it won't be too bad. Just literally a night of sleep will help. But when you're exhausted, uncontemplated fear can, can find its way into our minds. Verse 3, we're going to see our second characteristic. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. So in verse 3, the second characteristic of the existing exhaustion is minute-made decisions. I want you to turn back to chapter 17, and I just want you to see some words in the character of uh, Elijah's ministry. In verse 2 and 3 of 17, just note the, the words. Um, let us see. Verse 2, the word of the Lord came to him. Verse 3, depart from here. Or yours might read, arise or go. God gave him a word. Depart, leave, get out, go. Then look at verse 8 and verse 9. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise. Go to Zarephath. Well, go to chapter 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself. Now look at the end of uh, chapter 18, in verse 46. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Each point and at each event of Elijah's ministry, he gets marching orders. God says, arise, go, depart. The hand of the Lord is on Elijah. So he runs. Verse 3, there is no marching order, yet on he marches. He was afraid, uncontemplated fear. He arose and ran for his life. Now, Beersheba from Jezreel is around 100 miles. So on foot, he brings his servant. Now, a servant was someone who just ate. He's like an associate pastor. He aided the prophet in their ministry. If you needed to slaughter the bull, the, the servant was like, I got it. I'll, I'll cut it up and quarter it, and I'll put it on the altar. The, the, the servant was the aid to the prophet. Now, we'll see um, why that's important in our, our next characteristic, but one of the things I want you to see is that sometimes when we're most active, and we're most busy is the time we most need to be still. If, Dan, if Elijah just takes a second to take a breath and contemplate what is happening here and what he, he has seen God do, he might react a little bit different. Uh, my son Daniel, before he goes to bed at night, around 7.30, he hits this phase. And it's a complete meltdown phase, sometimes good, sometimes bad. And a lot of times it just involves him crawling in a circle. Then he'll sit on his bottom, and he'll look at us, and he'll start screaming. And then he'll crawl around again, and then he'll grab a ball, and then he'll throw it. And the reason why he's doing that is because he's exhausted, and he's about to go down. And whenever we see that happening, we know that it's, it's about his bedtime. Uh, John Piper has a, has a saying that has always stuck with me. He says, sometimes the holiest thing you can do is get eight hours of sleep. It's just rest. Because I think Elijah would respond differently a little bit here if he had given himself a second. Verse 4 and 5, the, the third characteristic of existing in exhaustion is despair. The end of verse 3, he left his servant there. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. 
and he lay down and slept under a broom tree. You see what he needs? He needs a nap. Do you see his despair? He has a prayer of God, take my life. That's how tired he is. Why did he leave his servant? Well, in effect, because he's leaving his role. He's giving up his servant because he's giving up his role. I don't need him anymore because I said, I'm no better than my fathers. I'm no better than any of the prophets before me that couldn't convert Israel or cause revival. I don't need him anymore because I can't do it. And he goes and he says, God, take my life. This is not a knock against Elijah. This, it's really not. I don't necessarily see this as a negative. I just see this as a big learning opportunity for us. That if we can see what happens in the life of an exhausted man who loves God and is a weapon in his hand, if this can happen to a man like Elijah with a, with a nature like ours, can it happen to us? Very easily. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, he said, um, I do not want you to be misinformed about the severe affliction that we um, endured. I believe it's in Macedonia, but it might not be right. Anyways, they endured a severe affliction, and he says that to the point that we despaired of even life itself, indeed, we carried the sentence of death in our bodies. It happened to, happened to the apostles. It happened to Elijah. Jesus, even though it's on another level, and Matthew says, I am grieved to the point of death. That's for a different reason, but Jesus was ministering. Jesus got tired. It can happen to us as well. Um, one thing that uh, I, was, uh, I just encountered in getting ready for this week is the, uh, a University of California study on sleep and what happens whenever we have sleep deprivation, which um, some studies disagree with others. But there's a fair amount of consensus to say that um, sleep deprivation or sleep loss is an epidemic in America. About 40 million people a year who are Americans struggle with it. And it has all these different physical and mental effects. One of them was that even at one night of lost sleep, your emotional reactions are 60% or 60 more increased. So you're emotionally more reactive on just one night's sleep. That's kind of off. And I'm sure that you know this. My wife knows whenever I'm tired and I'm grumpy. Or if I'm a little snappy or if I'm a little short. Then there are times where she's like, you're tired. You need to take a nap. And that is, that's how it is with us. Um, we also see in here, just before we get to the next part, the goodness of God to not answer every prayer that we have. He says, God, take away my life. And the gentleness and the patience of God is going to reveal itself here in the next couple of verses. And he says, no, I won't. Where sometimes it is the goodness of God to not answer our prayers. The second half of verse 5, we're going to see the first responding counsel of God. And it's that God just replenishes him. He replenishes him. Middle part of verse 5. Behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. Notice how tired he is. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, mountain of God. Now, the first thing that we see here is that God physically replenishes us because he physically cares about us. He cares about our spirit, and he cares about our body. He made both. Jesus in Matthew 6 says, um, the Gentiles seek after all these things, meaning clothing, food, and water. And your Father in heaven knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Meaning, clothe, life, food, water. The essentials. God has always cared about the physical, as our spiritual, because he's made us unified beings of soul and body. 
Jesus says, don't fear those who can kill only the body. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That there's this division of body and soul. Well, he replenishes us physically. And notice the only thing is, is arise and eat. There's no great teaching. There's no, Elijah, what are you doing here? There's no reprimand. It's gentleness. It's, he touched him and said, arise and eat. Arise and eat. He knows exactly what Elijah needs. God is the great counselor. He gives us exactly what we need. And right here, do you see the, the similarities of, of words from 17 and 18 of marching orders? Where he didn't have any marching orders, but on he ran. Here, he has two marching orders. Arise and eat. And then again, arise and eat. That's it. God says, wake up and eat. And it's the theme of God also to have encouraging um, learning experience conversations over a meal. When Peter denies Jesus, when Thomas doesn't believe that he's resurrected, and they go fishing, they go back to their old life in John 21, and they, they just leave what they've been doing for the last three years, and they go back to their old life of fishing, and they see Jesus on the shore, and what does he invite them to? Breakfast over a fire. And then he has a conversation. So God is so gentle with us, far more than we're ever gentle with someone else. So here's an interesting thing. In the end of verse 8, he rose and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, does anybody in here know what is another name for Horeb, the mountain of God? Sinai. So Sinai is another place uh, or another name, a synonym for Horeb. It's where God gave his direct revelation whenever the Israelites were in wandering and they left Egypt is he met them there. Now, there's something interesting about what Elijah is doing here. He's going back to where he knew God once appeared and how he once appeared to his fathers. Now, in first Deuteronomy, or not first Deuteronomy, <laughs> surprise, there's another book in the Bible. <laughs> um, in Deuteronomy 1, verse 2, the Israelites make a journey that's roughly and generally the same distance from Beersheba to uh, or from uh, Sinai, and it's an 11-day journey. So why does it take Elijah, who covered... 15 to 20 miles before somebody on chariot or horseback longer than a million people? Why does it take him that whenever he already just covered off 100 miles? And the distance between Beersheba and Horeb is about 150 miles. I mean, that's an impressive feat. And I'm not knocking him for taking 40 days because I would probably perish before I made it. <laughs> this is Middle East rocky terrain, but he could have made it there faster as he showed from his trip from Jezreel to Beersheba. So why did it take it so long? And I think that there is an element, and this could be either or, it could be neither, but I think it is worth thinking about. Elijah might be trying to get back to where he was in chapter 17 in the desert by himself, alone with God providing, like he provided for the, for the Israelite for 40 years in the same wilderness. If I can just get back to this experience that I had in chapter 17 or that my fathers had back in Exodus, maybe then I won't feel in such a funk. Maybe then I can get, get it all together and the despair won't be there. I think there's an element of that in his 40 days, going to Horeb. He wants to see where God was on a mountain. He's seen him plenty in the last two chapters. Plenty. But he's exhausted. He's exhausted. Um, here's the interesting part, though, is in all of his busyness. So he's now on foot covered, let's see, about 265 miles on foot. So <laughs> can you imagine his exhaustion compounded now? His busyness, 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 busyness. And sometimes whenever we're most busy is when we need most to be still. And in the interesting fact 
of the angel saying, Arise and eat, angel of the Lord, rise and eat, rise and eat, is he was currently experiencing what he was looking for in the angel of the Lord saying, Arise and eat. But he missed it. Psalm 4 8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Psalm 23, uh, he leads me to green pastures. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He brings me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Psalm 127, that it is, uh, the, it is pointless that you rise early um, from bed and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he, God, gives to his beloved sleep. One of the great promises of Scripture, or principles maybe, is that God gives restful sleep to those whom he loves. And so Elijah is experiencing the presence and the provision of God of what he's needing and what he's actually looking for without even knowing it. God is providing him. I'll give you, I'll give you food, arise and eat. I'll give you food again, arise and eat. And I'll give you the, the provision to go 40 days. I'll give it to you. But I don't think it's where you're going. So, Verse 9 and 10. Here's a fourth characteristic of his existing uh, exhaustion. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. One of the fourth characteristics, or the fourth characteristic of existing exhaustion is it can create tunnel vision. Tunnel vision. And I'll tell you what I mean. There are six statements in verse 10 from Elijah's response, five of which are true. It could be more broken down than that, but I think that's... Five is the most helpful. Verse 10, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. True. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. True. Throw down your altars. True. Killed your prophets with the sword. True. And I, even I, only am left. Not true. They seek my life to take it away. True. Mixed in there, is this idea that Elijah is God's only man. Now, I want you to go back to the beginning of chapter 18 really quick. Because in narrative, you have to find what the author wants you to find. And not, I'm not saying that I've found everything, but they'll leave you textual clues. Because in, in a narrative, they can't just tell you, this is what I mean by telling this story. Uh, in chapter 18... Um, there is a man uh, in verse uh, 3. We'll read this. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Parentheses. Now Obadiah what? Feared the Lord greatly. He was a God follower. And when Jezebel, and that gives you a little, a little background to Obadiah. When Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord... Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. Sounds like hiding place of the Tin Boom sisters. He's taking prophets and he's hiding them. He's feeding them. He's giving them water. And then verse 7, he, Obadiah gets sent on a task by Ahab. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him, fell on his face and says, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? Now that's all I want you to see. Go back to Chapter 19. I want you to see that the text told you Obadiah was a person who feared the Lord greatly. And how many people did he hide? He had a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties. Did Elijah see Obadiah? Yeah, he ran into him on the road. Verse 10, I only am left. I didn't want to, I almost said self-pity was one of the marks of existing exhaustion, and I think that can be. And I don't want to knock Elijah because I don't necessarily think he's pitying himself 
as maybe Jonah did whenever he praised to God that I might just die because his was more of a selfish prayer of they got mercy when they shouldn't have gotten mercy. They're evil people, the Assyrians. Here Elijah is legitimately wiped from doing God's work. And I think it's created tunnel vision of he's only seen himself. It's narrowed his view of the way that God works. Maybe in a sense of, if I don't do this, or if I'm not this, then God's mission on earth will fail. It'll crumble. It's one of the marks of existing exhaustion. Thinking yourself indispensable. Uh, I just watched a documentary. Has anybody here seen The Weight of Gold? It's a documentary about Olympians current and former, and the depression, suicides, and the anxiety they experience after the Olympic Games. Uh, Michael Phelps is one of the lead voices because he's, you know, he's the most decorated Olympian ever. He has 28 medals, 23 of which are gold, just unbelievable track record. And he, his life kind of went into shambles after every single Olympic Games. And he says, I would bet you that 80% of all Olympic athletes fall into a deep depression directly after the Olympic Games. Because their life goes for 15, 20 years, your entire life is built up to 40 seconds. And a bus ride to the Coliseum, you run your race, you swim your meet, and then you're done. You either get gold or you don't. If you do, then you're done. Most people aren't repeat Olympians. And then they're faced with this daunting reality, what am I now? What do I do now? And they had, they had sports psychology to tell you how to keep focusing the game. You got 50,000 people watching, 100,000 people watching you. How do you make that perfect shot? Make that perfect jump. They've got, uh, if you sprain your knee, they've got a team of five, six people on there. But as soon as you're done with the Olympics, nobody. Nobody to follow up with you. And all these athletes are just falling into these deep depressions. And I'll, they give a list of a lot of Olympic athletes that have taken their lives because their depression is so deep that they eventually resort to suicide. In a sense, I think Elijah has experienced this. I have this climb, this climb. I'm at the brook. The ravens are feeding me. I'm with the widow. Her son dies. You raise him back to life. I'm against all the prophets of an idolatrous nation. You show up. You put your hand on me and I outrun somebody 15 to 20 miles and then boom, he collapses. It's like this collapse. But then this is where Elijah is at. Now, verse 11 through 13, and this is just one of my favorite parts in all of the Bible. 11 through 13. And God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains, and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Here's, a, here's the second part of God's responding counsel is he teaches him. Once he's replenished, once he's up to snuff, now the conversation begins. Did you notice where, not Horeb, but where on Horeb or Sinai did Elijah Lodge. It tells you in the beginning of verse 9. Cave. Um, Moses had a request of the Lord. What God said, if I grant you this request, you'll die. What was the request? See him. So what was the, um, what was the exchange or the way that God made it work so that uh, Moses wouldn't die? Yeah, get behind the cleft of the rock, and then I'll pass by. That way you won't burn up because of the radiance of my glory. Get behind the cleft of the rock. Elijah is in a cave, and I don't want to make 
this is you know speaking directly from Exodus, but I think there is an aspect where he was wanting what Moses got. He was wanting, in, in Job 38, it says, out of the whirlwind, God spoke to Moses. I want to see you, God. I want to see your glory. And God says, you can, but get behind the rock, and I'll pass by, and you'll see my splendor, the blaze of my glory. And on Sinai itself, that mountain shakes because of the presence of God, an earthquake and I think God passes by with each element showing him, Elijah, this is what you're looking for. This is what you're looking for. But why does it make such a point to, to tell you that God is not in any of them? Elijah, you're looking for me in all of these, but these are not the things that you currently need. You don't need me as a fire. You already saw me as that. You don't need me as a wind. You don't need me as an earthquake. You need me as a low whisper. Then he speaks toward, what are you doing if you underline or give emphasis to the part in the sentence, here, Elijah? I was here with your fathers in the, in, and Moses in the wilderness wanderings, but I'm not here anymore. I was with you. There was a revival. The prophets of Baal were killed. People acknowledged that I was God. What are you doing here? Elijah. And you see the gentleness of God. Of, I want to replenish you, and then I'll enter into conversation. Now, why in Scripture does God ask questions? Is it to get answers? <laughs> no. He, he doesn't, God doesn't show up and say, there you are. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> I lost you on Find My Friends. Your GPS is just all over the place. <laughs> what are you doing here? He asks questions so that we might get the answer that he possesses. To Adam and Eve, where are you? What is this that you have done? To Cain, where is your brother? He knows where Abel is, because he says his blood cries out from the ground. God asks questions of us so that we might get the answer that he already possesses. And it's so sweet of him to ask it instead of saying, you're in the wrong place. That's what I would do if I was God in this sense. Of all the things I just did, but God is patient and he's gentle and Elijah's exhausted. The fifth thing, well, actually, hang on, before I get there, sometimes, and I want to ask this for our lives, sometimes when we want God most as a fire, we need him most as a low whisper. When we want God in the miraculous, we need God in the mundane. God, I need to see you. I need to go back to where you were years ago or for my parents. Whenever I experienced you better in the wilderness, when the ravens were feeding me, that was a better time. If I can get back there, if I can see you as a fire, and in a sense, God is saying, you don't need me as a fire. You need me as a low whisper. What was the... The essence of what Elijah needed was stillness. And the psalm says, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know. God's not impressed by our busyness. That if we keep pushing, he's going to be like, gosh, this guy is just great. <laughs> we need rest. That's why he gave us his son, so that we could enter into eternal rest. Uh, in John 11, there's a man named Lazarus who dies, the man whom Jesus loved. And Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And they come to him, and they're grieving four days after Lazarus dies. And they say, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And he tells one sister, he gives her a discourse on the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, will never die. He'll live again. Do you believe this? That's what one sister needed. The other sister comes with a verbatim same comment. If you had not been here, or if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And what do you get? The shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. God is our great counselor. He knows what we need, and he knows what Elijah needs. And he's been giving it to him the whole time. Elijah just hasn't seen it because tunnel vision has been created. 
minute-made decisions, uncontemplated fear. And now the fifth thing, obstinance. Verse 14. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Elijah digs his heels in. And he says, I said what I said, and I meant it. Obstinance, I've just kind of, I've dug my heels into my decision that was had in a rational room of exhaustion. And he becomes somewhat obstinate. Now, again, I don't think it's any great evil of Elijah. I don't think it's a, a great e- evil. Because here in the third thing that we see in God's responding counsel is first he replenishes him, then he teaches him, and then he leads him. Verse 15. And the Lord said to him, go. Now just stop there. You see in, in 17 and 18, the, the thing that was so common in Elijah was marching orders. Arise, depart, go. And then marching orders that Elijah didn't really see, arise and eat, arise and eat. But Elijah keeps on marching. Here, God says, okay, in a sense, you, you get what you want. Go. Go and do what? Return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And then in the middle part of verse 16, um, or just start in verse 16, Jehu the son of Nimshi shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the, the son of Shaphat, of that name, <laughs> you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. You wanted retirement, Elijah. I'll give it to you. He gives Elijah what he, what he wants. You want to quit, I'll let, I'll let you quit. Verse 4, or the fourth thing about God, though, is that he reminds him. He reminds him of two things, I think. Look at verse 18. He's talking about the future, the future things that will happen. And he says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the needs that, what? Have not bowed to Baal. What tense is that in? It's in past tense. It's not future. They have not bowed. Meaning, you're not the only one, Elijah. You're not the only one jealous for God, sticking your neck out there. There's 7,000 other folks. So he reminds him, one, you're replaceable. Appoint Elisha, and he'll take the role of prophet in your place. And he reminds him he's not alone. You're replaceable, Elijah, and you're not alone. And I feel as if there is a subtle rebuke, if not a rebuke, then an exhortation in God's verbiage here of, okay, go. Pick Elijah. He'll replace you. You are replaceable. And I think that's one of the things I've experienced this in the past in different arenas, whether it's ministry or family life or whatever, that feeling of they need me. I'm needed. If I don't show up, if I don't do X, Y, and Z, the whole thing's going to come apart. And in a time of like quarantine of, you know, I got sick and I have to st- step out, at times it's really humbling how well everything goes along if I step out. And I'm like, it didn't skip a beat. <laughs> Everybody's replaceable. John's replaceable. David's replaceable. I'm replaceable. Everyone's replaceable. And we're not alone. If we follow God and we fear him, we're not alone. We're amidst his people. He's got Obadiah. He's going to stick his neck out and be close to Ahab. What better place to keep prophets safe than a man who knows where all the orders are going? 7,000 other people. Not to mention that you just had a mini revival and impression of the people that Yahweh, he is God. So he reminds him. And here's, I think... It was the thing that softened me this week. And it brought me to tears at one point as I was just thinking on it. The fifth point is, it's not necessarily in a verse right here, 
is that God still uses him. Elijah's story doesn't end until 2 Kings 2. There's more ministry ahead of him. And one of the great truths of the Bible is that God uses us despite us. God uses us despite us. And that's, I was just like so humbled by it that I was like brought to tears of like God is, like currently he's using me. He's using all the people in this room tonight, elsewhere, online. He's using you, despite you, despite me. The glory of God to do that, to be so gentle, to be so patient as to bear not only with your actions, but with your thoughts. Not the, way, not the things that you do, but the things that you think. God deals with my thoughts. I, I'm annoyed with me and with my thoughts. And I'm like, ah! And for God to not only listen to me, but to listen to me and Nathan. And then me and David. Me and Nock. And he listens to all of us. And he's gentle with us. And he prods us on. He, he replenishes us. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. You're looking for me in the miraculous, but I'm in the mundane as well, just as much as I'm in the miraculous. So we need to look for God. Yes, find him in the miraculous, but see him in the mundane. It's one of the most, it's one of the things that the Israelites struggle with in the wilderness was we're only getting bread from birds in the morning and evening? Are you kidding me? <laughs> it was mundane. We want fish and we want bread like we had back in Egypt. That God was just providing every day. It says of Jesus in Hebrews that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's commanding your lungs now, breathe, breathe. He's commanding your heart, beat, beat. Your eyes see your ears hear, to your mind, no, no. God is providing that to you every minute that you've been alive since you were conceived, which God also did. And we would see that as mundane. That's miraculous. And almost, it's flipped on its head. Sometimes we need a low whisper of, Elijah, what are you doing here? So the five characteristics of existing exhaustion are uncontemplated fear. Sometimes you just need a night of rest. Sometimes you need to stop pushing on what you do. If I, I can accomplish this and get to here, then I'll rest. Once I get to Horeb, then I'll take a breather. Rest where you are. Be still and know that I am God. God's okay if something's left unfinished. You're not gonna, he's not impressed by your busyness. Rest where you are. So I tried to, well, I'll get there. So uncontemplated fear, minute-made decisions, tunnel vision. No, no, I skipped despair. Despair, tunnel vision, obstinance. God's responding counsel, he replenishes him where he needs it. He teaches him, he leads him, he reminds him, and he still uses him. So what are four phrases that summarize it for me? And it's this. Number one, don't give up. There are times in your life, and I'm sure you've experienced it, and if you haven't, you will, where you just think, I've got to throw in the towel. I am no better than my fathers. Oh, Lord, that I might just die. Don't give up. Number two, don't go back. If I can live like I did back at the Brook Kareth when the ravens were feeding me, if I can live like I did when I was in college and I was in a dorm and I had such beautiful community or this wonderful life, this time of life, if I can get there, if I can replicate it, don't go back. Number three, west, west, rest where you are and in God. In peace, you make me lie down and sleep. And dwell in safety. Um, that, that part of 2 Corinthians 1, when Paul says, we had the sentence of death in our bodies, he says, but this 
was to make us rely on God who raises the dead rather than ourselves. To be at the point of exhaustion and to carry around the sentence of death in your body was to make them rely on God who resurrects the dead rather than resting on your own strength. And then in, in chapter 12 of Second Corinthians, God says, my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Fourth, so don't give up, don't go back, rest where you are and in God. Fourth, press on when and where God leads you. Paul says, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He presses on. Don't go back. Don't give up. Rest where you are. Press on. Pray with me. We rest in you, God, knowing you are the God of Abraham, Moses, and Elijah, that you are a consuming fire, that the earth shakes before your presence, that the angels sing to you, holy, holy, holy. But we know also that you are a still, small voice, a low whisper, that you feed us when we're hungry, that you give to us sleep when we're exhausted. Will you give us the grace necessary to not turn back, to not give up, and to press on, to see you in the miraculous, and to hear you in the mundane. We acknowledge, I acknowledge, my frailty. And so God, make perfect your strength in my weakness, in our weakness. We rest in you because you have the words of eternal life. We trust you in this because we ask it through Jesus. In his precious name, amen.